I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hey there, it's Luke with some important programming notes for LiveWire listeners. One, in less than two weeks, we are going to be announcing our fall 2019 season, meaning we are going to be telling you about all the incredible guests that we have been assiduously uh, organizing for our fall shows. I don't know if I used assiduous properly there. Let's not get bogged down in that. The point is, we have an incredible season lined up for fall of 2019, and uh, on August 1st, you are going to be able to buy season passes for fall 2019. That means you will have a guaranteed seat for every show, even the ones that are sold out. And it turns out a lot of our shows are selling out these days, so you want to get in early. Plus, you get a deal on tickets. It's cheaper if you buy them as a season pass than if you buy them individually. And if you have been thinking about becoming a member of the Livewire community, we call it the League of Extraordinary Listeners, uh, this is a great time to do it as well. Uh, your uh, membership is tax deductible. You get exclusive pre-sale access, and you get 15% off the general public price. So you can join today and find out all of the cool things that we're up to over at LiveWireRadio.org. That's LiveWireRadio.org, and we will see you this fall. Hello there, and welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Hope you're having a great week. We have got a very entertaining radio program ready to go for you, featuring W. Kamau Bell, who you may know from his CNN show, United Shades of America. Also, author Karen Russell, who wrote Swamplandia, and Kishi Bashi, who makes music that is really kind of from another world, which is actually the theme that we picked for the show this week. Other Worlds, and we decided to ask the crowd at the Alberta Rose Theater if they would travel to Mars. Let's pick things up on stage with me and our announcer, Elena Passarello. I was thinking about this today. Would I want to travel to Mars? And I was assuming, by the way, that it was like, it's a one-way ticket. It just seems like very far away. So for you, traveling to Mars is not a visit. It's like no. it's emigrating. 
Well, I mean, yeah, because if it was go to Mars and come back, of course everybody would want to do that. If you if it's go to Mars and you have to live there, like in a space biodome or something, and you can never see your loved ones again, anybody who isn't there on Mars, you can't hang out with them, they're still on planet Earth, yeah. and you have to stay there for the rest of your life. I thought about this question, and I'm a definite yes. <laughs> Why? I have terrible credit on planet ah. Earth. I think that for me, it like honestly, it's kind of sad, but the thing that would be appealing about going to Mars, and particularly if you had to stay there, is that very few people would have ever done it. And that would be so appealing to me. Uh-huh. It's like if somebody is handing me something, and like let's just say it's some uh, like weird egg dish, and I'm like, that doesn't look very good to me, and they're like, yeah, but there's only three of these. On planet Earth, the last one was eaten by Princess Diana. <laughs> I would be like, well, I'm definitely having it because that puts me in a special class of person. So do you think that's the only kind of person who would end up living on Mars? Well, there are probably scientists and people that have noble goals. I just want, would want people... <laughs> I would want people who I would never see again and who I would never be able to actually get the kind of, um, you know, the benefit from. I would want someone somewhere on planet Earth to be like, that Luke Burbank seems cool. <laughs> Are you imagining in this scenario that you're talking to people from Earth? Or? No, I would, I would never even hear it. No. Okay. Would you go to Mars if these were the circumstances? Well, when I was a kid, we used to say this thing on the playground. We used to say, girls go to Mars to get candy bars, and guys go to Jupiter to get more stupider. Yeah. So, when I was a child, yes. Okay. But now that I'm older, uh, I did a little research, as I am wont to do. Would you ever go to the place in France where the naked ladies dance? Yeah. So you would never, like, it holds no interest going to Mars because you understand that it's probably pretty lame there. Like, it's very dusty and not hospitable to human life. Yeah, yeah, you would not be able to go outside. You would not be able to see a tree. There there would be no fun animals, What about the notoriety of, like, somewhere there's a plaque that says Elena Passarello was one of the few people that did this. I don't trust humans to consider that notable, or 21st century humans to consider that notable for longer than about five minutes. (laughs) This is, I think, maybe, now that that we're talking about this, this is where I think your plan might go wrong. Mm -hmm. You're going to go to Mars, everyone's going to be like, wow, for a minute, and then they're going to forget. And yeah. Luke Burbank will just be collecting dust on the red Literally. planet. Yeah. Okay. What are, the, what are the listeners saying about if they would go to Mars or not? Uh, I would say that the majority of people are not particularly interested, but a few are. Really? Most of the ones who are interested uh, are interested in the dating scene <laughs> on Mars. Have they heard good things? <laughs> apparently it might be better than Earth. That's how bad it is to be dating on Earth. This groan of acknowledgement from the crowd. <laughs> um, but so Spike, for example, would not like to go because there are no tacos on mm-hmm. Mars. Yeah. Uh, Kathy would not like to go because that documentary Total Recall did not sell it for her. Is that on Mars? That takes place on Mars. I, this is a little crass, and we probably can't use it. I know exactly it. what you're going to say. I know exactly what you're going right? to say. On the count of three. One, two, three. Three, three boob lady. <laughs> the movie should be called Three Boob Lady, because <laughs> if you saw that movie as a kid, I want to tell you, we did not discuss this in advance of the show. But this is how powerful that scene was to people Elena and I's age. There is no other part of that movie that is anywhere in any of our brains. Yes. Yeah, no, it's true. 
I have never felt closer to you. No. As a coworker, Elena. Yeah. We actually have somebody just off stage who knows all about other worlds because she creates them for her books. She was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her book Swamplandia about a family that lived together in a gator wrestling theme park in the Florida Everglades. And her latest book is Orange World and Other Stories. Please welcome Karen Russell to Livewire. I was so tempted to introduce you as one of the greatest American writers under five foot five. <laughs> because you're, you're actually, you were considered one of the greatest American writers under 35, but somebody got it wrong on the intro. Yeah, they did. And then also I continued to age in time. Yeah. <laughs> but you are also under five foot five, so it was, it was technically accurate. It was accurate. That's how they introduced me. They said one of, the, one of America's finest writers under five foot five, and who, who could object? <laughs> totally verifiably true, I feel. Um, one of the things that always comes up when you're interviewed is a question about how you kind of invent these really creative worlds with your writing. And this interview is going to be no different. How do you create these very inventive worlds with your writing? I wish you want like a pithy answer. Right? I'm like, well, drugs, Luke. <laughs> they open the portals. This um. is public radio. We will take your longest, most rambling, pause-filled answer. Yeah. Lay it on us. You know, I was just, I was uh, just reading this thing about um, Goya. You know, he would do these paintings with these amazing, like, elongated figures. I imagine he got his version of this question, like, how do you, what, make, what compels you to, to paint these strange, you know, mysterious worlds? And, and it, Goya was on Livewire. We asked yes. him, Did you we ask asked him, him that too? question. I also you asked know, him I that, I think yeah. he might have just had, like, some vision trouble. <laughs> I mean, I guess that, that's, like a, like, a very glib way of saying I really think, you know, um... That's my uh, bumper sticker answer. It's this wonderful Flannery O'Connor quote where she says, the truth is not distorted here, but some distortion is used to get at truth. And that, you know, for whatever reason, I think if there is some uh, fantastical shimmer in a story or if it feels like a world that's like slightly divergent for ours, then I've, I feel like I can imagine my way into it and be honest in a way that's like almost never possible for me in the fluorescent light of you know, this world. But so, I mean, how do you, like, what's your process a little bit? Will you read something somewhere about a real thing and kind of just kind of click it over one click off of reality in your mind? Or you have an idea and you're asleep and you wake up and write it down? Like, how do you generate a lot of this stuff? Yeah, I'm, my, so my favorite story uh, in this new collection, I, I, we visited Timber, Timberline, the Timberline Lodge. Yeah. And so a lot of times it'll just be going to, you know, walking around, moving through some physical location that's, you know, evocative and in this case, like a little terrifying. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, it, and then I, it wound up being sort of a story about these young women uh, during the Great Depression who take a ski lift to what they believe is going to be this fabulous party. And it's, you know, it's totally the wrong party. And they're the only living guests. And it's like a bummer of a night. <laughs> I th- I, I love your eye for detail when you write, like, you mentioned somebody unlikable in this new book, and you mentioned that they had once eaten the sticker on a green apple instead of taking it off. And I thought that was the sickest burn you could put on a person. 
I mean, I feel like that's, that's no invention of mine, Luke. That's with apologies to some of my male relatives. I mean, sometimes, sometimes you're just really hungry. Um, the, the, the piece that that particular detail is from is from Bog Girl, A Romance, which is one of the things in this book that's been getting lots and lots of attention. It's, an, it's a really incredible idea for a story, and it's really well executed. Uh, can you explain for folks that are listening just kind of the broad points of, of, of that story? Yeah, I can try. They, they all sound like, um, I think, mental illness in paraphrase, but I'm going to try. So it's <laughs> this young turf cutter. He's sort of in... You know, this island off the coast of Northern Europe. He's a, just a very weird teenager. He has not had much success with, like, eye-level crushes on girls his age, like real live girls. And one day, um, you know, he's cutting peat in this bog, and he discovers, like, a 2,000-year-old um, body, which happens with, like, surprising frequency, yeah. it turns out, in our world. <laughs> not, not even the invented part. Yeah. <laughs> right, like, it, because of the geography of this place and the fact that there were humans living there a long time ago, it's kind of the perfect environment for finding 2,000-year-old remains of people. Yeah. Like, I, preserves the, the matter. Yeah, so the tannic acid sort of perfectly. So if you guys are into that, that's where you should go. <laughs> um, and he, he falls in love with her, and the policeman is like, well, this isn't a recent murder victim, so we're not interested. And he's like, cool. And um, then she's his girlfriend after that. I... I read this, this story to be about the fact that when you fall in love with someone, it's almost not even about them. It's like about whatever you're projecting on them because of your own stuff. I, you know, I, I sort of, there's a, I hope what reads is kind of like a, like a little bit of a feminist twist at the end of this like very macabre thing I just described. But absolutely, I mean, part of the attraction there for this particular 16-year-old, but then maybe for many people at the start of relationships is you have this like, perfectly inert screen for fantasy, right? Um, very little chance of rejection. <laughs> um, <laughs> you've sort of preempted that whole <laughs> drama. Um, and I think this kid is coming from a family where a lot, of, a lot of other things feel chaotic, so he's like, this is awesome. You know, we're, yeah. um, you know it's, it's a good first girlfriend to have, you know, um, in some ways. <laughs> I mean, I could think of better ones. <laughs> There's a surprising number of jokes about her being an older woman with them dating, which is like the understatement of the century. Yeah. But that's one of the things that I think are so great about the stories in Orange World is they're these outlandish prospects, but then, like Luke said, you find this very universal connection to first love or motherhood or friendships between women who are fighting off the adversaries of the world, right? Like, there's always this, like, real-world implication that uh, comes out of this, and then you get to enjoy this really fantastical universe building, and your life is there as well. It's just so I fun. hope so. Thank you, Elena. I hope so, right? I mean, I think if, if the story works at all, it has to first transcend that sort of um, frightening joke, <laughs> or, you know, the, the, the premise of it. And, then, and for me, it works that way, too, a little bit. It's almost like disarming and charming yourself to get into a story to talk about something that's, that can be sort of unbearable if you come at it headlong. You Is know? it fair to say, uh, maybe not in terms of disarming and charming, maybe also kind of disturbing, like sort of shaking mm -hmm. people from their sense of normalcy uh, out of the sort of dinner party yeah. conversation into the bog romance? Absolutely. I mean, right ever so slightly. Uh, the, the, the other story you referenced, Orange World, which is the title story, 
I think in some ways, um, I just had no language after my son was born for this totally surreal landscape that I felt I had entered. Um, it happened to be that winter in Portland where the literal landscape, like we were all just you know, paleontologists of our car and there was you know, the, the greatest ice storm of the century and everyone was living in like the three block radius around their house. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I guess this is just what new motherhood is. Right. I, I, I live in this hole with this abject dependent. <laughs> I want to talk about that. <laughs> By the way, that baby is a big listener to the show, so you're going to have some explaining to do when you get home. I want to talk more about that particular part of this book, too, uh, when we come back from a quick break. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We are talking to Karen Russell. Don't go anywhere. Livewire is supported, in part, by Fully. Listen, you know in your heart of hearts that sitting around at work all day, that ain't great for you. But guess what? It's not just your heart of hearts. There's actually a lot of science backing that up, which is why Livewire partners with Fully, the company that believes people weren't meant to be glued to a chair all day. Fully has curated the best collection. And I've been there, by the way. I've met them. I've seen the stuff, and I can testify. They've got the best collection of standing desks, active sitting chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage us to move. Uh, I've got the TikTok stool. In fact, I'm sitting on it right now. I don't know if you can hear me rocking back and forth on it. But uh, the folks at Foley sent me this thing, and it is just a dream. Uh, It's comfortable to sit on, but it keeps me engaged in the work that I'm doing, keeps the blood flowing, and and it's really improved my life as I uh, work to host your favorite public radio show and podcast, known as Livewire, in case you needed a reminder. Anyway, if you would like to be better at what you're doing and stay more engaged, check out Fully. Get your body moving in your workspace by going to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, along with Elena Passarello. And a fine crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We've got author Karen Russell here as well. Uh, Her latest book is Orange World and Other Stories. Um, You won a MacArthur Genius Award? It's true. Isn't that unlikely? (laughs) Well, I I would say in in a certain way, because I think a lot of times we associate that award with a particular kind of maybe scientific innovation or just a certain kind of work in the world, um, which is, of course, not any more important than writing, but it is associated with other things. I'm curious, do you even know when you're being considered for such a thing, or does that come completely out of the blue? No, for me, I mean, I think there probably are people, you know, who are inventing incubators that run on marbles or, you know, sending people to the moon or discovering, like, you know, exostars and new planets, and they are probably sitting by their phone waiting for this call. <laughs> I, I didn't. I just know who answers their phone if they see right. a number they don't know. I was like, oh, I, I, I think I have a bill I haven't paid. I'll, you know. So you were just sitting at home or somewhere, and the phone rings, and on the other end of the line is the committee telling you you've won this Genius Award, and it was like a bolt of lightning? It was like a bolt of lightning. And also, it kind of prejudices you for the rest of your life to sort of, like, answer the phone very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, the caller ID says, Mom, but I don't know, maybe. Scam likely. Well, we'll find out. Yeah. Guggenheim? Right. (laughs) Yeah. You don't have to answer this question because it's sort of personal. 
But the I, they also give you, I think, what is it, $500,000? Yeah, it is a, it is a they, shocking. They give you a bunch of money to basically fund your enterprise of being a genius. What did you do with the $500,000? You do not have to answer this question. I was like, look at what I'm wearing, Luke. Yeah. You, I should tell, have to ask? I should tell the listeners she's wearing a diamond-covered fur jacket. Yeah. So that was 200K of it. I mean, I don't even want to say specifics because I don't, want to, I don't want to get into your financial decisions, but I guess I just wonder, like, how does one use a sum of money like that to continue the endeavor they've been doing yeah. that's gotten them declared a genius? I know, and it's funny. You know, I think people in the sciences are actually accustomed to, such, to do the work that they do they need quite enormous sums of money. Whereas I think like the poets and the wizards are like, oh my God, I could open a grocery store. Like I think we're all like, wow. I could get health care. I'll never, yeah, I can fix my teeth now. You know, <laughs> like I think it's just a very different ball game <laughs> a little bit. And I have to, you know, one of the things that I did that's going to sound very boring, but I had been bouncing around doing these kind of visiting teaching gigs, like this weird Mary Poppins person. And, um, and I, I had just sort of, um, fortuitously met my husband, my now husband here at um, Reed College at the Tin House Writers Workshop. And so we, yeah, I felt like, okay, well, I'm now, gonna- Now, wait through. a second. Was he serious about this before the 500K? <laughs> he was. All right. He was. he was, I'm happy to say. He got in just under the wire where I didn't have to <laughs> think I was in like Night of the Hunter or something. <laughs> Did, I mean, does, there must also be some pressure with winning an award like that, which you didn't ask to win, and I'm sure you were extremely flattered and honored, but then you got people like me asking you about it on stage years later. It's true, it's true, and it sort of also feels like, what could you do to ever um, merit that? I mean, it turns out the scientists know, they're like, we're, <laughs> we're inventing like, you know, things that distill water that run on the sun that will save humanity. Right. Puts a little more pressure on a sentence. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Uh, let's talk about the title story from the book, Orange World, uh, in, in which a new mother agrees to breastfeed the devil in exchange for his protection. There, I was getting a kind of a big hit of Little Shop of Horrors in there. There's a real feed me vibe where this thing kind of gets out of control. How did this story take shape? I mean, was it based in your own experience as a mother? I feel, Luke, I honestly feel like before the MacArthur line of questioning, these people were on my side and now they're like, boo, give back the money. <laughs> Hold on. Fund our public schools. No, we, we, there's an easy way for us to find out if the audience has turned on you. Should Karen Russell leave the stage right now? Okay, you're still, you've still got them. Um, the, the, title, the, the, the title story from the book Orange World, uh, I mean, you sort of mentioned a little before the break like that, that was a reaction to motherhood for you? Yeah, and this is the, the sort of thing, too, about you know, the way that really you, you asked what I did with that money. Most of it went into just setting up a life here. And, and saving, you know, for our son, and then having, like, the exoskeleton to, you know, to have this sort of rooted... I mean, I'm sure Elena can attest to this. It's, it's a strange speculative gamble to work on a book. Amen, um, yeah. It's a really... It's kind of a mad gamble, and it, it, takes, it takes such a long time, and it was just nice to have um, that kind of freedom from the financial insecurity that plagues many writers. Do you feel wilder? Yeah. You know, like, would, would a breastfeeding devil story maybe not have been a part of... 
your creative reality before you got this platform? Well, you know, I think in all honesty, you know, stories are, this will shock everyone, but like a, like a hard, you know, short story collections, it's just not where the Hollywood megabucks are. <laughs> and so I, I felt free to sort of pursue this sort of insane, you know, I mean, it, the, the math doesn't really add up, you know, if you think about how long it, um, it took me to write these stories. Right, um, yeah. But I, but I will say I, do, I did feel like having, there's something very disorienting about having what felt like a really stable, rooted existence here in Portland during a time when the world felt absolutely uncertain. And then, you know, our son was born right after the 2016 election, so that threw another wrench into things. And so it was just trying to navigate this very, like, literally slippery. You, you, you Portlanders remember? <laughs> that was a terrifying winter. <laughs> Nobody parked on hills. <laughs> um, There's that part in the story, I'm not giving anything away, where, like, kind of all hell is breaking loose, and everyone in the story stops to talk about the fact that no one is salting the roads because it's Portland. (laughs) It's so great. That's the the bond. In addition to this devil that's tormenting them, that's the bond that unites them. I I honestly think that detail has gotten the crowd back on your side. (laughs) Karen Russell, everyone. The new book is Orange World and Other Stories. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder. But with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. This is LiveWire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. This week, we're talking about other worlds. And we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater to tell us in a sentence why or why they would not want to travel to Mars if given the opportunity. Uh, Elena, you have uh, gathered up some of their responses. What is, what is interesting to you? Uh, here's one from Cheryl. Cheryl is a strong, hard no, does not want to go to the red planet, because Cheryl is not into red. <laughs> like as a color? Yeah, it just doesn't match with Cheryl's color story. The I older suppose. I get, the more that I understand how important it is to be in flattering light. Mm-hmm. No, totally true. Like, I will sometimes stay in a hotel room, and they just have, like, it's a yellowish light in the bathroom, and I'm like, I live in this Hampton Inn now. Yeah, no totally. I'm never leaving. <laughs> There's like one of those mirrors that makes you just look a little more fit, and you're just like... How are all of my mirrors not doing this? Yeah, and why don't we do that to our own homes? Well, because then you go out into the real world and you look like a demon, I guess. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, What else? Um, here's one from Jean. Jean says, I've been called a space cadet my whole life, so why not? <laughs> Jean, we're going to need that kind of humor on the 12-year trip. So buy some more Laffy Taffies and study the jokes in the wrapper. You're in luck, Luke. It only takes nine months to get to Mars. Yeah. That was basically around the corner. Right. It's like walking to New York City, probably. Only in space. Are you traveling at some kind of speed that we cannot yet achieve, though? No, I think it's possible. But you need three million pounds of supplies just to get there. (laughs) Uh, what else? Uh, here's one from Kathy. Also, would go to Mars. Thank you, Kathy. Welcome to the mission. If Kathy can bring her 50-year-old philodendron Lucille. 
What is a philodendron? It's a plant. It's 50 years old? Yeah, like a rhododendron, philodendron, those things live for, they're pretty big, right, Kathy? Kathy left. She's already on the plane to Mars. Plane. <laughs> one more Mars. Okay, one more person who wouldn't mind joining you is Merritt. Merritt says, I would love to escape terrestrial politics and focus on the basics of day-to-day survival. Yeah. <laughs> like, honestly, I'm surprised that's not a more frequent answer. Like, I feel like before 2016, no reason to go to Mars. Currently, a lot of reason to go to Mars. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. <laughs> This is Livewire from PRI, and we're talking about other worlds this week on the show. Our next guest has won two Emmys for his amazing CNN docu-series, where he basically goes into strange, unexplored worlds like Canada <laughs> and lots of other interesting places. He is the host and producer of United Shades of America. Please welcome W. Kamal Bell to Livewire. <laughs> Very popular in Portland. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, 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 even despite what I've said about Portland on CNN. So that's what I was gonna say. You yeah. did uh, an episode of your show, well, early one, early. here in Portland. Right, in, right around here. Actually, we filmed right around here. So, yeah. What did you learn about this fine city? You know. <laughs> Should we leave that one alone? <laughs> Let's bring the lights up. How many black people do we have in here? I see hands. I see one hand. That's what I learned. All right. Yes. So it's a, good, it's a good city. It's just we got to be honest about what we're doing. You know, I'm doing the shoulders. Um, congratulations on on your show, United Shades of America. It's it's incredible to me because it's both a show that does really meaningful, important work. I think, and is also has really found an audience on like a major TV network. Like that kind of never happens, right? I mean, I'm pretty lucky in that I have a entertainment show on a network that doesn't have a lot of entertainment shows. Acts on purpose. I mean, CNN entertains people often and goes viral for entertaining people. That's all I'm gonna say. Well, I can say more, but, uh, but yeah, but it's like, there's not a lot of real estate for shows on that network. So when you have a show on that network, they really do promote it. I have lots of friends who have shows on networks where it's like, and there's arguments about they don't talk about my show enough. I don't really have that worry because they have two shows on the air right now, me and Van Jones. So if I see Van Jones commercial, I'm like, mine better be next. <laughs> there it is. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah. When you, when you were developing the show with CNN, uh, obviously, they knew that you wanted to try to tackle really important, real issues. But do you ever get any pushback about the stories you cover or the things that you explore? Because, I mean, you guys really are speaking, this sounds cliche, but you're speaking a lot of truth to power on a lot of these episodes. I mean, I think, luckily, by the time, they, CNN sort of, I met with them, and they already knew who I was. I was pretty lucky. It was after Totally Biased. Yeah. So they knew. Your great show, Totally Biased with Kamau Bell, which yeah. the New York Times many years later said was where all the good comedy was happening. Yeah, they didn't say that when it was on. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> thanks for those painful couple years. But uh, no, I mean, it's funny, Hari Kanabola, who we both know, he's yeah. been waiting for that article 
to come out. He's like, finally! <laughs> like, that they, they recognize that all these, I mean, a partner on Cherla, Guy Branham, yeah. uh, you know, Hari Kondabolu, uh, you know, there's been a lot of people who went through there, Janine Brito's writing, there's a lot of people who've done a lot of, th- Kevin Avery got two Emmys with John Oliver. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe that show was, I, I guess, a little ahead of its time. It was never going to work. <laughs> it was ahead of any time. I mean, it was. I mean, in I, human think I, I appreciate the fact that the work that we did, that people appreciated it. I was not ready to do that show when I got it. I said, I wish I'd had that. Like, like all the shows that are working now, that are really working, are people who got to spend time at John Stewart University. <laughs> And I did not get to spend time at John Stewart University. I feel like like Asam Minaj, John Oliver, you know, Samantha B. They all got to sort of be there and sort of, and even Trevor Noah, like for that, like got to sort of learn from the person who sort of pioneered this style of TV, where I was just sort of like like watching John Stewart a lot, going, oh, we should do more of that. Yeah. Do you think there's an advantage to being one of the few people now who didn't go to John Stewart University who's making this kind of material? I mean, I definitely think this is the show I should have had. Like, I think the United States of America, I, I, every now and again I get in, like, I think about if we still had totally biased, what we would do, but this is more where I live than, like, sort of, like, talking about the news of the day. I like to be out in the world mixing it up with people. Did you know ahead of time that you would be able to talk to anybody? And was this a thing that you built no, off the of? No, you can see over the course of the show that I get more and more comfortable talking to anybody. Like, I mean, the first show we did was The Clan. Yeah. <laughs> that, was a, uh, that was a big come-out role, we'd say, at the yeah. casino. <laughs> so that one, it was the pilot, so we didn't hadn't sold the show yet. And sort of that oh ended up being, yeah. So the reason why I was like, I pushed we should do The Clan, because I was like, well, if it doesn't go anywhere, at least I'll have a story. And so that show ended up being the one where I was like, can I be, can I relax with these people? Can I be funny with these people without losing myself, without feeling like I'm sort of pandering to them? And so that show taught me a lot about talking to anybody. But then every episode, I feel like if I'm not a little bit nervous about who I'm talking to, it's probably not worth talking about. So, you know, so like this week in the show, which is the last episode of the season, is all about lead poisoning and, uh, and bad health and living in toxic environments. It's not real fun to talk about. No. And I was talking to moms whose kids had been poisoned by lead in Philadelphia and, and, and an activist in Chester, Pennsylvania, who was talking about how they, the factories were destroying her community. And I get like, I, who, I dropped out of college. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, who am I? But it, it sort of as we film, I just sort of relax. And usually and that starts before we start filming. I talk to the people and sort of just like loosen them up and see if we have a connection. And if that works, then everything else is fine. Do you do any kind of like meditation or other stuff around trying to be present? No, I have three kids. I don't have time for that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering how, like, how in some of those conversations that, that, that are part of your show, where you're talking to somebody who's either been some, through something really hard or uh, totally disagrees with you on a particular topic, and then you have these TV cameras, and you're trying to have a natural conversation. It just seems like it's a real mental feat to stay present in that conversation and actually have a real conversation with someone. I mean, the, the number one thing I think that I do is I listen, and I, and I practice not interrupting. So there'll be times when somebody will say something and be like, especially as a comedian, you're trained to sort of like, if somebody says, oh, you're trained to jump on it. And I've sort of learned that like, no matter what I think I have to say, I should probably just let them talk themselves through the whole thing, because people don't get to do that often. But the more you sort of let people talk, the more they reveal themselves. And so the, the thing that I learned, this is in, from living in the Bay Area, is the value of like shutting up and just listening. Uh, although my wife, Melissa, might be like, I don't know if you learned all that, but. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
that's the thing that I think I do is like I've learned it's, as a comedian, it's hard not to sort of I got something to say. Yeah. But I've learned how to just sort of like mm, just From turn it off. From living in the Bay Area. From people I met in the Bay Area, it's not that the Bay Area automatically makes you shut up. I'm just. <laughs> But from the people I hung out with in, in, in the Bay Area when I moved out there, I'm like, vegan cheese? I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, literally, that was one of those, like, why would you, if you don't like cheese, why would you? <laughs> and then I would say, I wouldn't say you're rebuilding the relationship with Portland right now. <laughs> <laughs> this is my relationship with Portland. <laughs> yeah, see, this is, there you go. This is Livewire Radio. We're talking to Kamau Bell. His CNN docuseries is United Shades of America. Um, you recently got a vasectomy. Uh, speaking of your wife, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> I would not bring this up except that you actually did a piece for CNN on this yes. where they were filming the procedure. But what I thought was great about it was this was not just played as a stunt. There's a lot of gendered stuff around reproduction and birth control. And you kind of get into an um, actually important larger conversation. And we're also able to see you in surgery with this happening. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So it was, uh, we were filming an episode. So these are two separate things that are happening. We had our third child. I thought we'd only have two. So I was, I'm happy to have the third one. Don't get weird, everybody. <laughs> I understand how it works, literally. So like we had the third one, and it was like we're also at that point where it's like we can't have another one because we'll die. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I was an old dad from the first one. You know what I'm saying? So then Melissa Moore was like, well, then you need to get a vasectomy. And I was like, oh, you're so funny. And she didn't laugh. And then we ended up talking about it, and she had talked to a friend of hers whose husband had a vasectomy. And this is the weird thing about it. Women know the men that have had vasectomies around them because the women talk about the men who've had vasectomies around them, but the dudes don't know. So I was like, he had a vasectomy? And she was like, yeah. And so then I like, walked up to him, hey, you had a vasectomy. And he, was like, and he told me about it, and he was like, it's 10 minutes long, it's no big deal. It's so not a big deal that there's not even thing medically they do afterwards except tell you buy frozen peas. Like, that's how not a big deal. And it's literally what's keeping the frozen pea business exactly. in business. Because nobody's buying those for any it's, other reason. It's for infants. Yeah. <laughs> like, and people and dudes yeah. get vasectomies. <laughs> so, but what comes up in the, in the piece is that your wife had been managing this part of your life yeah, as a couple did. for years, and it had maybe not even occurred to you. Yeah, she was like, at one point she said, I have been on the pill for 15 years. So for 15 years, I've been alter basically altering my body chemistry so you could be footloose and condom-free. And I was like, huh. I mean, it just sort of, it's like one of those things, like, it just made sense. I, there was no way to argue against it when I found out that the surgery was easy. But then I thought, here's the thing. If I'm going to do this, knowing what I know about it, and also at the same time, we're filming an episode of United Shades about reproductive justice and reproductive rights in Jackson, Mississippi, where we filmed at the last, the currently the only abortion clinic in the state of Mississippi, I just felt like, the thing I can do is sort of show what my part of this reproductive rights discussion is, but not put it in the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But not put it in the show, because then it's like, in the reproductive rights episode, we're going to show a man getting vasectomy. It was like, no, so it's, right. a, it's a video. Kind of a web extra. It's a web extra, yeah, yes. Very extra. Yeah, very extra. My favorite part is when you can hear them cauterizing the vas deferens. Woo. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I smell like bacon. <laughs> this is live wire. We're talking to Kamau Bell. His show is United Shades of America. It's on CNN. Uh, 
in a recent episode, you actually took an implicit bias test. Yes. Uh, what did you learn about yourself? I, well, so this is a test that was developed by Harvard researchers to find out implicit bias is a fancy way of saying racism before you hurt somebody. Right. Like when you walk into a room and go, there's a lot of black people in here, that's implicit bias. Or there's a lot of white people in here. Or there's a lot of Indian people, whatever. So, so the test is to find everybody sort of, like they say, they found out when they'd ask people, are you racist? Everybody goes, no. They go, I guess nobody's racist. But this is a test that is designed to basically outthink you. And by showing you faces and words and people smiling and not smiling, you just have to answer things as quickly as possible. And it gets past whatever your yeah. notion of yourself is that you'd like to believe and gets down to the real core yeah, it, of it, how it your brain is. sort of like, I'm going to put the answer and I want to put in there. Right. And so I find out that I have a moderate preference for black people, which is basically my brand. <laughs> as a black man who's married to a white woman but talks about racism all the time, that's basically who I am. Yeah. Yeah. The, the episode Which I was happy to hear, because if it had said, you have a preference for European-Americans, that wouldn't have aired. So that's <laughs> <laughs> What you don't know is I took this test 18 times. Yeah, right. We've got to do it one more time. We've got to do it one more time. The whole episode was about Milwaukee and what I was totally surprised to learn in watching it, which is an experience I have a lot of the time when I watch your show, is that Milwaukee is the most segregated city in America. Yeah. How does that play out? Well, I mean, it starts from the fact that like, segregation is a plan that governments put into place. So it's not something that's an accident. So it's like, basically, if you live in a neighborhood that is heavily Latino, and then you go to a neighborhood that's white to rent a house, the institutions, the banks, the government won't rent you a house in that neighborhood. And, uh, and also, in the neighborhood you live in, if it's a Latino neighborhood, because it's been marked and redlined as a neighborhood where Latino people live or black people live, the houses don't accrue value the same way the houses in the white neighborhoods do. So it's like America's plan for most major cities. It's just Milwaukee is because it's a smaller city. The gentrification doesn't happen in the same way, although it does happen. It sort of has stayed in place in a lot of ways because Milwaukee also has a problem of brain drain. Chicago's nearby. So anybody who's like has any hope of a dream happening is like, I gotta get the hell out of here. And so then those people don't stay around to make the city better. So it's a, it's a, it's a you know, segregation is a plan that is put in place by governments and by institutions to keep people in the neighborhoods they should be in and not let them get out. Are there any places where we see that kind of institutional racism fading or people have been able to institute programs that kind of break that up a little bit? I mean, every, I feel like every episode of United States of America is basically about gentrification. So I would say there's not one place in America where I've been in my travels where it's like, oh, they figured it out. Normally it's like, oh, they haven't gotten here yet. So in some sense, it's like you have to predict where gentrification is going to push people to. But it's, there's no city that I know of that has figured out a plan for it. One of the things about the show that I enjoy, too, is that you seem to be finding things out along with the viewers. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you've been to a lot of places for this show. You've talked to a lot of people. I, I mean, do you come away from that experience hopeful about anything <laughs> I, I don't even mean that as a joke. No, I, no, I know you don't. I think it's funny somebody laughed. Like, ha, 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 ha. no, he doesn't. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't think if I didn't have hope, I don't think I would be doing the TV show at all. Like, I think I'd be doing. You know what I mean? If I, I if I, if I didn't have hope, I wouldn't have had three kids. But you know what I mean? At the same time, I have friends who are like, I know people and activists who are like, you know, we've only got like 30 more years on this planet anyway. Right. So it's like I balance these things out and go, well, is there things we can do? To, to sort of slow this down or make this world a better place. And my job with the show is to try to put those things out there. And I feel like, but the 
ultimate bummer is, is like, does it work? I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, I know that the show is not activism. The show is a TV show, it's entertainment. But the hope is that embedded in the show is that there's things we can do to help people or pay attention to the people in your community who you're not looking at. Like, I mean, that's the big, big thing with the show is stop being siloed off. And this is not left and right. I think we spend too much time talking about it like it's left and right. The people who are in your community who you walk past every day who could use help and you have the privilege and the means to help them. Yeah. W. Kamau Bell, everyone. The show is United Shades of America. All right, we've got to take a quick break. This is Livewire from PRI. We're talking to W. Kamau Bell, and we will be right back. Hey, special thanks this episode of Livewire to Andrew Traceman of Eugene, Oregon, and Mary Hirsch of Portland, Oregon. Andrew and Mary are part of the Livewire member community. They generously support our show with a donation each month. We are very thankful for that support because without it, we literally couldn't do the show. So thank you so much, Andrew and Mary, for helping keep Livewire going. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Over there, that's Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland with W. Kamau Bell. All right, Kamau, here on Livewire, we really like to get to know our guests on a very deep level. I feel like we've already talked about your vasectomy, so we're pretty close. <laughs> Um, but we think we can take this to an even deeper level. And so we have this exercise, which is we have a physical jar on stage here. It's got the five essential questions of our time in it. We call this the jar of truth. Oh, hit my, uh, mm. <laughs> Here's how this will work. Uh, you grab a question out of the jar of truth, uh, hand it to Elena Passarella. She's going to read it. And then we would like to get your honest answer. Oh, okay. W. Kamau Bell, is it ever necessary to actually ask to speak to someone's manager? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the black people who wrote that one down, I'm going to guess. Is it ever necessary to actually ask to speak to someone's manager? <sighs> this is a hard one. Um, I want to tell you, that question has been in the jar for like two months. Is it really? It is total happenstance that you drew it. Is it ever necessary to actually... It, mm, this is, it's harder than I thought this would be to answer these questions. Well, they're the five uh, essential the questions of our time. The only time you should ask to speak to someone's manager is if, if like, somebody's being stabbed in front of you. Mm -hmm. Other than that, keep it moving. Is this a question that we didn't even think about the racial component of yeah, it? Yeah, you didn't think about the racial components of this. No, this is... A, what is the racial component to this question? White people will ask to speak to your manager when you don't even work at the store. <laughs> And maybe you aren't even in a store. <laughs> like you're on the train. I need to talk to your manager. I don't know who you are. So that's, I think there's a racialized component to this. Yes, yes. One of the benefits of being married to a white person, though, is that when I'm in situations where I need to talk to the manager, I send in my white wife to do it. <laughs> it's called trading privileges. All right, Kamau Bell is drawing another question out of the Jar of Truth. Elena will read it. Oh, okay. Are you pro or con in regards to writing in cursive? Am I pro or con? I mean, 
I am pro learning fun things. So I'm pro writing in cursive because it's like a fun activity to learn. But it's not like I don't th like I was we were looking at schools for my oldest daughter. We went to a school where they were like, we don't teach cursive here because we just teach computers. I was like, great. They're like, but we don't have enough money for computers. I was like, slow down, everybody. Slow. We got to go one or the other. We can't. We're either all handcrafted or we're all electronic. We can't. So in that sense, pick I'm, a lane. I'm, yeah, yeah. So yeah, pick a lane. Yeah. Did you? Were you taught how to write in cursive when I you were in school? Yeah, I'm very old. I was taught how to write in old English. Oh, nice. <laughs> Calligraphy. The F. The S looks like an F. I did yeah. that. Yeah. People are very hardcore about cursive can't die. I think that's lots of things have died. I right. think it's fine. Because <laughs> now I will write like when you're like writing with like a pen and I'm like, whose handwriting is this? Because I write so rarely that I'm like, this is. Mm, I need to practice. I will like. One of the greater stresses that happens to me on a yearly basis is writing out a birthday card for my wife. I now will buy two cards because I know I am messing the first one up. Yeah. On simple words yeah. like the or yeah. love, I will put the V in front of the O because my brain is so not used to handwriting things yep. and I'm very anxious when I'm doing it. Yeah. So I'm going to say con. He just talked con. Yeah. All con. right. Cursive Anti -cursive. con. Anti-cursive. W. Kamal Bell, you have tamed the jar of truth, and thank you so much for coming on Livewire. Thank you, thank you. Hey, it's Luke. Are you a subscriber to the Livewire newsletter? The newsletter is the best way to stay in the loop on our show, like when we're releasing new podcasts, uh, when we might be recording the show in a city near you. Plus, the newsletter includes awesome photos from our live recordings so you can see what we all looked like when we were making this radio show and podcast. If you would like to sign up, just click on the Stay Informed button on our website over there at livewireradio.org. This is Livewire from PRI, and we're talking about other worlds this week. Our musical guest has an otherworldly quality to his music. He's a multi-instrumentalist who blends pop, rock, electronica, and other forms across his multitude of musical endeavors. His latest album is O Moyari, uh, and it's out now. Please welcome Kishi Bashi to Livewire. Sand over your fancy. 
fancy shoes The first day that I met you I wrote down in my book Kishibashi here on Livewire. All right, that is going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, W. Kamau Bell, Karen Russell, and Kishibashi. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Foley, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing associate. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we got to thank members Carol, Gabrielli, and Vicki Reitenauer of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can get our podcast or newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. 
I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Live Wire crew. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.